The Business Without Boundaries podcast is for multi-passionate entrepreneurs who crave the freedom to create a career in life on their own terms. Because we know that the next best thing to having a business that allows you to work whenever and wherever you want is having a company that rewards you well for your time and talent invested. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We are almost to episode 10. That's so exciting. I've had so much fun showing up and recording these for you guys. And today I wanted to go back to the beginning a little bit and my story and how being an expat prepared me for being an entrepreneur. So for those of you who caught the first episode, the story of the global creator, you know that I spent nearly eight years living overseas. I had studied art as an undergrad and I moved to London and studied interior design at the, um, oh God, what was it called? Chelsea College of Art and Design. It's part of University of the Arts London. And then I moved over to Paris and I finished a degree in interior design there at a school that had a lot of um, associations or whatever you want to call it with universities back here in the States. So I thought it would transfer back very easily. But I ended up staying in Paris for three years there as a student and was trying to get my visas to switch over and just never could quite get that to work out. So I ended up down in Australia in Melbourne for a year on a working holiday visa working with a small boutique interior design and architecture firm in um, the St. Kilda area, so real close to the water. And that was that was a really fun experience because it was a startup. It was just one architect, one designer. They were friends, these women, and they were so, it was so cool to see them like start their own business. And I was there as support and to be able to be immersed in the whole Australian design scene, which is top notch. So there was a lot of years there. This was a time period of about, see, Australia would have been total of around six or seven years of being back and forth between Florida and overseas. And then I came home for about a year and a half and then decided to go over to New Zealand for a little bit and gave that a go, but kind of ran out of steam. I decided that it wasn't for me anymore. So I came back to Florida, set up home base in Fort Lauderdale. And that's where I've been ever since now. It's been about four and a half years. And it wasn't until I came back from all of my travels that I started this path of being my own boss and freelancing and eventually stepping fully into the role of an entrepreneur. So it fascinates me all the time to look at the parallels between my life as an expat and all the things that myself and my other friends in the expat community, the things that we dealt with on a daily basis that really set us up well for just getting shit done. And it's the exact same mentality that I now bring to anything that I do as far as being my own boss and setting up my own company and being out on my own in that regards. Because when you go and land overseas, you don't have a roadmap to follow. It's a bit of the wild, wild west, if you will. You you have some sort of visa most of the time. If you're on a tourist visa, then you're just there for your 90-day spell. But after that, you're kind of just dumped in the middle of this totally foreign land, depending on how exotic you decided to go. 
Um, for me, I, I dabbled with being abroad in London, landing there really didn't feel that much like being in, now that I look back, it didn't feel too much like a foreign country now. It probably did at the time. But right like now when I look back, like London was so easy. Um, but that didn't mean that I had a roadmap or some sort of clear step-by-step process to follow. I was enrolled in a school, so I had a bit of a cushion, if you will. I was able to set up somewhere to live because of the university. They had a, so I landed and I stayed in this dodgy hotel place thing. I don't even know what you would call it. It was not a proper hotel and it was before Airbnb was really a thing. So it was just this dingy room that I didn't know how to work the lights. So as soon as it got dark in the September, August, September, whenever I moved there, once the once the light was gone, it was time for me to go to bed. Thankfully, I spent the majority of my time there jet lagged. So I just slept a lot anyways. But I was able to go to the university and tap into their resources in order to start trying to find more permanent housing for the year. And they had a big... <laughs> They had a big printed um, booklet, let's call it, where you could go through and it had all the phone numbers and all this. So this was definitely before the internet made everything so easy that there was definitely Facebook and things like that. But people, it wasn't such a common thing just to go online and find all your information online. Plus I was overseas and I didn't have like smartphones were not a thing back then. So it wasn't just land and turn on your data roaming. I had probably a Nokia or something, and I had to figure it out. I landed and I had to find housing. I had about a week, week or two before my my classes started, and I just had to get it done. So I went over to the university. I asked them. I found this booklet. I called a bunch of people. I set up a bunch of appointments, and I went and looked at apartments, and I found a place to live with some really lovely other students two South Korean girls and a girl from Norway who were all at my school as well in different areas of study. And I ended up living with them for the entire year. So, okay, housing, boom, done, basic need taken care of. Next was setting up iPhone. I imagine I did it in this order. I can't remember. But yeah, you need a phone when you're living somewhere and you're there are no smartphones with data roaming and you need a local number, you need a cell phone. So I had to set that up. And in order to do that in a lot of foreign countries, you need your passport. You need your, like all this information. It's not just, it's not as easy as just walking into the store and saying, hey, I need a phone and a number. Like there's paperwork to be done. And so had to sort that out. Thankfully, at this point, I was doing everything in English. So it wasn't as difficult. When I got to France, it was a different story. We'll get to that next. But so I got my apartment got a cell phone. It was a pink Motorola Razor. That was like all the rage back then. So I could send like 10 text messages and keep like 10 text messages in my inbox before I had to delete them all and, and you know, clear out my, my storage because my phone's memory was gone. But we sorted it out. We made it work. And then I needed a bank account because if I was going to be there for a year, I didn't want to be spending all these foreign transaction fees every time I pulled out my credit card to pay for something or like a lot of times I, I was using cash back then. I was just pulling money out of the ATM and paying like carrying around cash. It kind of felt a little bit like Monopoly money because it was all colorful and pretty. But setting up a bank account in a foreign country is also not a straightforward endeavor. You There's a lot of paperwork you have to do for that as well. 
And so nothing is as easy as just walking in like, oh, now that I've arrived and they speak English, it's all good. I just have to show up and do, you know, check, check these things off the list, X, Y, and Z. And then boom, we're done. We're, we're a student living in the UK and it's all fine. And it was all fine, but checking off those boxes was not nearly as straightforward and easy as you would have thought. So, but again, I was doing this all in English. I was there for a year. I had a university that could help me. So it all got done. The whole point is that it got done in spite of these obstacles. And they were all unforeseen, like trying to (laughs) figure out how to buy the supplies that I needed for class was a bit ridiculous because in the States, we go to a drugstore or some sort of convenience store and you can buy everything. In the UK, you have to go to the specialty stores to get things. So I was going to the drugstore trying to buy a pair of scissors and they didn't have them. Like it took me so long to figure out where to buy a pair of scissors because I just didn't know. I was, how old was I? I was like 22 years old, 23 years old, something like that. And I'm just drop drop myself in the middle of London and I had to figure it out. And I did. I figured it out and everything came together. And I had a wonderful year there and it got to the point where it was going to end. I started looking at options for extending my visa and couldn't really find any options that suited. So this is how I ended up in Paris. So I went over to Paris. And like I said, there was a university there that had affiliations with other universities here in the States. So I thought that it would be very easy to complete my interior design degree there and transfer all of my credentials, my educational background, to oh, back to the States when I was had decided it was time to come home, which I never really decided it was time to come home. That kind of happened by default. But so I went over to Paris and I... Flew to London first because I wanted to stay with a friend of mine who had lived in Paris. And um, I landed in London in the middle of a blizzard. And you know when it snows in the UK, especially in London, like life stops. So I had one of the only trains that was leaving. I think I probably flew into Gatwick and I was trying to get out to Kent to her place. And it was, I mean, there were so many (laughs) train platforms that were like train canceled, all this stuff. So I finally got a train out to her place. I landed. I had all this suitcase, you know, heavy suitcases because I hadn't learned how to pack light yet. And I landed with all the, you know, had these big snow banks and I had like two, three major suitcases. I'm trying to pull them up this hill to get over the bridge to go across the train tracks to get to her place or at least get a bus to get closer to her place. And some nice gentleman took pity on me and like helped me lug them up this not very steep incline, but it was a hill for a Floridian. It was a hill. So, you know, this was unanticipated. And I get to Paris. I take the train over that the Eurostar. It's so much easier than jumping on a flight. And I take my a taxi, get to the, uh, the new school um, in Paris. And they had set me up with an apartment, thank goodness. So I didn't have to deal with all of that. And that was all fantastic. I spent my first semester there pretty much just settling in. I had a built-in community and everything was, you know, we had to learn how to grocery shop and things like that. But it was all very um, surface level, I'd say. I wasn't really fully entrenched in like expat life because I was still there as a student. And the school was taking care of most things for me. 
and I didn't need a bank account at this point because I really only thought that I was going to stay in Paris for a semester so I was just doing a little study abroad before I went home because I wasn't quite ready to come back to the States. But of course, I stayed in Paris and I absolutely fell in love with the city and decided to finish the degree there. So now that I had made this commitment to stay in Europe, I needed to figure things out. Like I now no longer had an apartment with the school, so I knew that I needed to fly over a bit early and, and sort it out. So I used, I think I used Craigslist or the French version of Craigslist to go through all these apartment listings and I went and looked at all these apartments and sometimes like they were super expensive and it's really normal in Paris and France for apartments to not be furnished at all, like no refrigerator, no furniture, no anything. So some of the places I looked at had nothing in them and that really didn't make sense for me being a temporary student. Some people that I made appointments with just never even showed up. So, but eventually I found a room and I got all that sorted. So, okay, once again, living situation sorted. Next, trying to get a French bank account. That is like the holy grail. It is not straightforward. It is not easy. It, there is nothing like short of bribery. It is like next to, it's just a huge ordeal trying to get a French bank account. Thankfully, I had the school help me with that as well, because otherwise I would have needed a gas bill. And in order to get a gas bill, I would have been, I would have needed an apartment under my own name, because at this point I was only renting a room. And in order to get an apartment under your own name, you have to have a bank account. So it creates this really interesting round robin of requirements before you can get yourself all set up in France. But I got the bank account with help from the school. I tapped into support and I used my network to get me set up. And then I had to go through all the visa requirements and I had to go for medical checkups and I had to go for visa renewals and all these things. And now at this point, everything had to be done in French because I was in France and they kind of frown upon it if you don't at least make an effort to speak their language. So I was conversational at this point. I certainly wasn't able to tell jokes, but I was advanced enough that I was able to go and like point at a piece of paper or somewhat explain like what was going on. Like it was always a big ordeal for any of us when we had to do visa things or go to the post office or go to the bank for, to, for some transaction because we literally had to rehearse what we were going to say beforehand and then heavens forbid if it went off script when you got there and they asked you a question like if you really mastered that first line they were like, oh, if they speak French, and they would like rapid fire back at you, and you would just be staring at them, feeling absolutely ridiculous, everyone behind you. And then, of course, they know, like, oh, they're not French. And, you know, then people weren't rude, but it's like you kind of want to feel like you belong and feel like, yeah, I can, I can hang with these guys. I can converse. It's just basic. I'm trying to deposit a check or take out money. It's not, I'm not asking them to explain quantum physics to me. Like, why can't, why is this so hard? But that is, that's how it goes down when you're, <laughs> you don't speak the language and you're literally trying to just do these daily activities. Um, same for setting up a French cell phone. That was, that was interesting as well because they're asking you questions and all these things and you're, you're kind of answering what you think might make sense, but you're not entirely sure. So you're not really, you know, 100% on what you've agreed to when you've walked out of the store and you don't know if your phone's really going to work or for how long or how 
many minutes or texts the credit that you just bought is going to give you. It's all just kind of, you get thrown into this monopoly game and you're figuring it out as you go. And so I did that and I was able to, by the end of my three years there, I could, I was fairly confident, able to go into stores, into the bank, into places and speak French. And I wasn't always a hundred percent. My grammar, I'm sure was like on an elementary level, but they understood me. And I was confident enough to not be shy about speaking French versus asking them immediately if they speak English. So that was a major win. And I spent more time at that visa office trying to get my visa extended. And it just never worked out. But I had conversations with them and I was you know, laughing with them. And so that felt like, wow, I even though my visa got rejected or denied, like I felt like I'd kind of made it. Like I entrenched myself enough into French culture that I can sit here and joke with these guys and understand what they're saying. And it's second nature at that point. I didn't have to think about it. And then when my visa was denied and I had to leave the country and I um, had the option of either going back to Florida and figuring out what I wanted to do or a friend had invited me to Australia and I had that option open, I decided to jump at that option. And even though I had never been so far geographically before, when I landed in Australia, everything went back to being so easy because I had just come from France and the French are notorious for their bureaucratic red tape and all the hoops you have to jump through just to do the most simple thing. And I landed in Australia and I had a working holiday visa. I was allowed to work in the country for that year. It's a very common type of visa to have. So setting up a bank account, boom, done. Getting a cell phone. Yeah, I needed my passport, but boom, done. All of it was done in English. They didn't need 17 copies of every paperwork I needed to submit and a notarized copy by the Pope, it felt like, in France. Like, everything needed to be, like, certified French translation, notarized by this specific consulate source, like, all these things. It was so complicated. So by the time I got to Australia, yeah, it was still foreign paperwork and visas and setting yourself up in a in a... You know, far away land, but it was easy because at this point I had already done it three times. There wasn't really, I won't say there wasn't a challenge in it because each country represent like presented its own unique set of challenges, but it was no longer such a monumental effort. And this is where I find it really interesting to tie it back to entrepreneurship and starting your own business and building your own business because it's very much like getting dropped in a foreign country and trying to figure out how to catch the metro or how to catch the subway and where you go from there. And once you get out of that public transportation, like which exit did you come out of? What direction do you go in? I don't know. Who can I ask for directions? They gave me the wrong directions. Now I don't want to ask again. Like This is all stuff that happens when you travel overseas. I remember being in Shanghai and there's no such thing as sounding things out there. Like we were in the metro with the subway there and it's just, you just got to go. You got to pick a direction. You got to try it. And if you're on the other side of the city by the end of the night, you have your hotel, write down your address before you leave. So you can just show it to a taxi cab driver and they'll take you back. That is exactly what you do when you literally have no means to communicate. We tried miming. We tried like, I tried hanging out the taxi cab and like pointing directions that I thought we were headed in. 
it kind of worked, but you know, it was just very much fly by the seat of our pants. And I think that setting up your own business and going out on your own is very much the same experience. It's this mixture of exhilaration and excitement and being absolutely petrified and not knowing if you're going to make it, if you can hack it, everything's so new and foreign and very like overstimulating to the point where sometimes you just need to take a moment and just decompress in a quiet place. And that's, that definitely happens when you travel and you move, like there's, there's ebbs and flows. It's not just like you land there and it's like, Oh, it's all macaroons at La Dore in Paris and afternoon tea in London and whatever, like, and barbecues in Australia, like there's real world shit that needs to happen. And there's a lot of an emotional roller coaster that happens when you go move overseas, you miss your family, there's things that just are so much easier at home, you have to figure out the grocery store. I don't know why this is such a like a major thing. But every time you go to a new country, the grocery stores are completely different, you have to reteach yourself how to cook every time you switch countries. There's some basic staples, but it's amazing, like the variety of food that I, I cooked, what I cooked in Paris is not the same as what I cooked in Australia. And it's not none of those are the same as what I make here back in Florida. So you literally have to reteach yourself all these basic skills for survival. But you know that there's no other option, you have committed, you really want to be there, you know that it can be an amazing experience. And that there's so much goodness to be found in this life of living overseas and being an expat and immersing yourself in a new culture. And once you get over the roadblocks that inevitably pop up, that's fine. They're, they're just there to make the experience more rich, to give it some, some texture to the fabric of the story. And we accept that as just part of the experience. And we don't use it as a sign to confirm that something's wrong, that, well, I made a bad decision moving to Paris because I'm having trouble figuring out how to talk to people in the grocery store. They yelled at me because I was taking too long to count out the change or whatever, or did that at you. They don't yell. They more do that. It's more passive aggressive, <laughs> but, but still like you don't take that as a big sign that like, oh my God, I made a horrible decision and I need to turn back immediately. And I think we do that in our businesses a lot because again, it, it's an optional route. Like not everybody needs to move overseas and not everybody needs to start their own business. There's a lot of uncomfortable moments and there's a lot of things that are new that we have to teach ourselves how to do sometimes over and over and over again until we've mastered it, like learning a new language. And I think that if we open ourselves up to the experience of just letting these bumps in the road come and not allowing them to create so much drama in our minds and create all of this meaning, like attach all this meaning to them, like, oh, I hit a roadblock, I have a challenge, this didn't go the way I wanted. Um, this obviously means it's not meant for me and I have to scrap the whole idea. Now, if I did that overseas, like people would definitely look at me, my expat friends would be like, yeah, you're just having a moment. Like simmer down now, you'll be fine next week. Um, and that definitely happened. Like there's not a single person in my group of friends that didn't have a meltdown at some point over something that felt insurmountable at that time. And oftentimes it was things like visa issues. Um, their government having problems with their student loans, you know, something, uh, there was a girl in one of my classes who was having visa problems. And if she couldn't get it sorted, she was going to have to be sent back to 
Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, I can't remember which one, but she, there was an arranged marriage waiting for her back there. So that was a much bigger deal than me just having a meltdown because I can't get my bank account to open right. And for some reason I have a limit on, or I, I messed up my pin again and I don't know how to ask the bank how to, how to fix that. And so I might have to pay some foreign transaction fees until I get it figured out. Like there's all these different levels, but the whole point was like expat communities are very interconnected and they're very supportive because no matter what situation they're dealing with, everybody is in the same boat. They are a fish out of water, trying to figure it out, loving the process sometimes, hating the process sometimes, and really just embracing it as once you get past that hump, like, I feel like a local, I feel like I belong now. Like that is the best feeling. Like I remember my best friend in Paris, we always, you know, people would visit and we take them around to see the sites and all of that. And then we would also take them to just do the local stuff that we did, like sitting in a cafe for four hours and just watching the people and everybody saying, oh, this is so wonderful. You live in Paris. You get to do this all the time. It's like, well, yeah, we do. But you know, we still have to do our laundry and buy toilet paper. We just do it with the Eiffel Tower in the background. And yeah, that might sound a little bit blasé, a little bit Parisian, but really it was at that point where like this was our lives. Like this was, we had folded this into our identity and it was no longer like fresh off the train, starry eyed out the window, looking at all the new architecture. Like this now was a very comfortable identity that we adopted and it was, it wasn't work anymore. And we were able to enjoy it and just really step into those shoes of belonging and having groups of friends and having things to do and taking trips on the weekend or day trips out to wine country, whatever it may be, and having a friend who had a house here. And so we're going to go visit them, take the train for the weekend down to another country. All those magical doors that are opened when you're living overseas are the same feeling as the magical doors that open once you successfully launch a business or become your own boss or create the career that you've been dreaming of. Because expat life is something that people dream of. Don't you dream of being able to walk down a cafe, like a street in Paris and go to the boulangerie where they know your order and the woman just says, oh, d'habitude, which means the usual, like usual, and they just hand you the sandwich. And that, that's what my life was there. So it can get to that point once you get past all of the suck, all of the hard stuff. Like if I had decided to give up and quit when I had issues with my bank account or getting a phone or like all just those menial tasks at the beginning, if I had made them so monumental that it made me want to quit. And we did have students in our program that quit and went back to the States or back to their home country and decided that they hated Paris and they didn't want to be there. And they just gave up. And then there were those of us that stuck it out. And we had this beautiful experience on the other side. And I think entrepreneurship and being your own boss can be very much the same journey. And this is why I say that being an, an expat really prepared me well for being an entrepreneur because I have learned how to roll with the punches. And there's really not much that can happen in the world of entrepreneurship outside of like losing all your money and going bankrupt and you know all of that but even then like you just go get a job you just go get money until you get things picked up again you don't you don't get off the train going to the destination you want to go because you had to take a detour or there was signal failure in Belgium 
which is a bit of a joke because every time you take the train from Paris to Amsterdam, there's always signal failure in Belgium every single time. So, but you don't stop. It doesn't mean that I wasn't going to get to Amsterdam. It just means that I had to sit there in Belgium for an hour every time. And that was okay. It was just part of the experience and everybody's getting impatient and we're all like, I had a flight to catch, you know, all these things. But it just kind of, it becomes a really good story that I can think back of now. And it's more proof that, wow, I was a local, like I belonged in Europe and I had, I had created that for myself. So guys, when I say that being an expat prepared me well for entrepreneurship, I really down to my core believe it because it taught me how to overcome hardships and not take my eye off the prize. And that is going to be probably the biggest differentiator between those that stick with it, whatever it looks like for you, whether it's being freelance or starting your own company and wanting to scale or teaching digital courses or whatever it looks like to you. If you have a dream of what you want your career and your life and your business to look like, do not take your eyes off that that bigger dream. You might have to change and experiment and test and tweak on your way to getting there, but don't ever take your eye off that prize because there's going to be hiccups and there's going to be bumps in the road no matter what you decide to do in life. And it's the ability to accept those and roll with the punches and not make them mean so much about you and your value and your capability and your ability to get things done and whether or not it's meant for you. We use that excuse a lot. This just wasn't meant for me. This wasn't the right fit. It wasn't meant to be. No, you can make that meant to be. There's always the option to continue to pursue your dreams. And just if one path doesn't work out, keep your eye on that dream and try a different path. Don't just sit back and give up and passively let your dreams slip away. Okay, guys, that that was my little bit of the rant at the end. Um, But really, being an expat could not have prepared me better for the rocky road of being an entrepreneur and setting up your own business. And I would love to hear if you guys have any similar experiences. I know a lot of you guys are in this for the freedom and a lot of you guys have traveled as well and probably have your own story. So if you have any, if this resonated with you or you had any moments where you go, oh yeah, this one time I, please share them. Guys, pop over to our Facebook group if you're not a a member already, Business Without Boundaries, and let me know your thoughts or hit us up on Instagram at the GC underscore studio and let us know because I would love to hear any obstacles or hardships or anything that you ever overcame or even some funny travel stories because I always love to connect with other people who are just really um, tapped into that international or travel traveler identity. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening and I will catch you next week. All right, everyone, if you enjoyed today's episode, then head on over to the Business Without Boundaries private Facebook group. This is a group that Katie and I created to connect with you, chat with you, answer your questions, and generally foster a community of other multi-passionate entrepreneurs who are getting it done. To join, go to facebook.com forward slash biz, B-I-Z, W-O boundaries and answer the three questions that pop up when you click on join. And once you're in, then we can continue the conversation and um, get to know you better. We believe 100% in the power of community to connect, collaborate, and grow together. And we so look forward to seeing you there.